Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the nonprofit news feed, we have our major story, which we made the focus of the the week's newsletter, which is the Supreme Court poised to strike down Roe v. Wade and how we see that changing the landscape for advocacy for both pro-choice and pro-life nonprofits, as well as touching many other industries. Again, this has not gone through. It was a leaked bit, but Nick, you're going to walk us through this as well as some other news highlights. Sure, George, I can start us off. So of course, yes, we begin with that first story that was reported by Politico, which published a draft decision written by the United States Supreme Court, which appeared to show that they were poised, at least when the decision, draft decision was written, to overturn Roe v. Wade. What that means is that nearly 50 years of abortion access precedent coming from the court now is very likely to be reversed. The decision comes as a worst-case scenario for pro-choice advocacy groups and health provider groups like Planned Parenthood, Narrow Pro-Choice America, and many other groups and funds that work to help women access abortions. And that being said, on the flip side of it, there are lots of pro-life or anti-abortion advocacy groups themselves, nonprofits that are have been working to get this passed. So essentially, you have this bombshell announcement that's completely altered the the landscape for advocacy organizations on both, both sides of this issue. And there's so many reasons and so many ways in which this can pretty dramatically impact America social life and economics. The list goes on and on. But at its heart, this is ringing as a, a bombshell decision for a lot of people, and people have, understandably, very emotional reactions. George, what, what, what's your take, and, and how do we think about the many nonprofit organizations that are kind of involved? It's hard to see through the frustration and many distracting narratives going on, such as who leaked it, how did it happen? I think we if we're being honest, could see the dominoes falling after RBG sadly passed and was unfortunately not really even remotely honored when it was rushed through into the Supreme Court to change uh, the landscape of how these justices would deliberate Roe v. Wade. So, you know, I've been wading through just massive amounts of news, but I think anything that's like looking backward saying, oh my gosh, they lied in testimony and it, it truly doesn't matter. What we're trying to focus on and what I'm trying to look at is the second order effects that are to come and pulling those out of nonprofits in the narrative saying here are some that were for, some that were against this decision and suddenly the entire table has just been flipped upside down. And so these groups that have previously been more about advocacy have just removed potentially a layer of support for women who are truly in, in need in a time of 
great, uh, great risk, I would say, that frankly, Planned Parenthood and others were supporting in that period of time. There's no safety net if suddenly you're in a state where that's made illegal. And so you have to move from groups that maybe were pushing paper and other very lightweight ways of advocacy into, you know, you have to support these women in some way, whether or not that aligns with the right of choice or right of life. It, there's a lot of infrastructure that is just not there. And I see a switch that is about to be flipped and not a lot of planning as a result of it. And so I try to park a lot of the, the hand wringing about how did this happen? And this person did that to her is somebody who's going to become pregnant, who may be in tremendous need, doubt, concern, risk, and more than one, you know, the data will show you this in a lot of the states that are about to flip back to a, a draconian, I would use the word type of legal system that does not support uh, these women in a safe way. And that, that's where I'm trying to spend my, my thinking a bit on this. Yeah, George, I think that's a good analysis. Nearly one in four women by the time they reach 45, 50, will have had an abortion in this United States. And the fact that now what was a relatively routine medical procedure, a lot of these states have snap laws that go into effect the moment that Roe would be toppled. Those are poised to go into effect. There are some states that are pushing laws to, in fact, criminalize abortion, as in getting one or facilitating access to an abortion is now a criminal, criminable offense. And that is, it's insane, to be honest. It's, it's, in, it's insane. And the, other, the flip side of this, and there's kind of more to the story as we outlined in the, the newsletter here, is that human rights groups are actually warning Human Rights Watch and other, other news organizations are warning that tech companies and organizations with information about people who've accessed abortion resources or, or procedures, those organizations with that data may find themselves under legal pressure um, to disclose that information to prosecutors if charges were be, to be brought. And it's just kind of another kind of dark direction that this is facing if getting an abortion becomes a criminal offense. So like you said, it kind of flips the whole thing upside down. We don't know. I don't think where this is going to go from what I'm seeing on the advocacy side. There are tons of abortion funds that are organizations that help facilitate uh, women accessing an abortion. And even in states where it's perfectly legal, people, it can be tough to access, right? You know, there's socio, there's uh, monetary barriers, and there's a lot of organizations on the ground that have some experience doing this, but they're about to find themselves as a lifeline for a lot more people than they anticipated very quickly. So it'll be interesting to see how that. The word here is legality. And when you change that word, you suddenly have a whole host of, I'll use the word weapons, provided to the court system to mandate, demand, enforce companies that may have data, say Google, 
potentially Apple, depending on where the, the data resides in the searches and information and stored contacts and what have you. If this is a legal question, because it's been made illegal for a woman who is, by the way, even beyond sort of the questions of rape and incest and very, very real medical endotopic type pregnancies where you will really have to get a, get an abortion to save your, your life potentially is that the process of, of having a child in America, despite all our advances has carries with it 60 X, 60 times, not percent, 60 times the amount of that an abortion does. And so with that, and you're using the word legal as a thought exercise, consider how marijuana laws carry across states right now. And if you drive across a border with a certain amount of legally purchased marijuana, I did something legal here. It is illegal over there. And you go state by state. There are a lot of unfortunate second order effects that could happen. And the, the landscape gets a, a little bit more scary. And I think it's great that human rights watch is already sounding the alarm with enough time for companies to start anonymizing, de-anonymizing and protecting people that will be put in danger in these states and areas. I agree. Really important things to think about. And again, it, this is, it goes up and down the ladder, right? <laughs> this, is, this is fundamentally altering in the ways that very few policies or laws or quite frankly events, at least in my lifetime, have had in terms of life as an American, quite frankly. So, of course, we'll continue to watch this story. The one aside is that you'll probably start to see increasing tension on both sides over the weekend. An anti-abortion nonprofit in Wisconsin called Wisconsin Family Action was the target of an arson attack. Over the past couple decades, both organizations on both sides of this issue have seen instances of violence, unfortunately, but it's... Yeah, I don't know, <laughs> kind of at a loss of words with what more to say, but something will continue. Yeah, to I would say if you're, if you're frustrated, one, one thing just to speak personally as a, as a father uh, of, you know, one little girl and one little boy, and also as a, a leader of a company, I thought I was compelled to say something to the staff. And I'm going to probably continue to try to also message around this just about where we sit, what we think, and, and what we do to help keep the focus, because a lot of people are frustrated. And where I try to point us toward is that this is the social justice pendulum swinging in a way that we really disagree with, that violates precedent, that actually for the first time in as many years, it's like 50 plus years, removes a right that we thought was inalienable and granted into the, the contract of America. And one thing I know about pendulums is that when you push them very hard to one side, they come with force back the other direction. And so the positive, because I always push myself to think this way, that I do see coming is that a lot of people just woke up to the fact that what was granted and what was taken for granted has been taken away. And people do not like it. When we take things away, we feel lost two X the amount of gain. And so I think a lot of people just woke up and they woke up at a time when the midterms are coming. And that's why I believe 
there isn't a sort of large brass band being walked down Washington right now by the GOP. I think there's a lot of people afraid to talk about what the actual implications of what a minority has just pushed onto a majority. That's a great point, George, when you take a step back and then contextualize it and think about broader trends. All right. Pivoting a little bit, I'll take us into the summary on, I'll say a much lighter note, billionaire owner and or previous owner, not no longer chief executive of Amazon, but billionaire nonetheless, Jeff Bezos has donated $120 million to as yet unnamed nonprofit. Um, apparently, this brings his nonprofit donations up to $233 million, at least in terms of unnamed nonprofits he's giving money to. George, why'd you throw this in the mix? I just wanted to throw a little... Two things. One, I'd throw a little shade that uh, he's only about five billion, five billion short of what his wife, ex-wife has done as a philanthropic leader. But also, I think you want to keep an eye on where his kind of dollars are going because there's a lot more dollars behind it. And it's very interesting to see and track where, frankly, one of the richest men in the world is deploying capital in the social impact sector. So it's not just a sort of billionaire watch, but it's saying where where is that that mindset shifting in this particular time? I think that's a good point. In a world where billionaires seemingly increasingly dominate the news and trends and other aspects of our life, looking at Elon Musk controlling the uh, Twitterverse, I think this is important to keep an eye on. Our next story comes from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and it is about the Chronicle of Philanthropy, which has announced a, quote, ambitious growth plan to put the national spotlight on the social sector, which is their way of saying they are becoming a nonprofit news organization. The Chronicle of Philanthropy previously, I did not know this, was actually wholly owned and operated by the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is kind of the, the premier news source for, for colleges and, and university and higher education type news. But that is itself a private, independent, for-profit entity. But now the Chronicle of Philanthropy is breaking off into their separate own nonprofit organization. One of many newsrooms to do so of late. This is absolutely a continuation of the trend. I feel like it's a great way for a leading voice on nonprofits to, in fact, you know, uh, walk the walk, and I, I hope them all the success. We enjoy their work, and yeah, hopefully it continues to grow as a, an extra valued source of information in the sector. All right, I'm going to wrap our next two stories together because they're related. This is following up on a story we talked about a couple of weeks ago about the Black Lives Matter organization, which came under some heat for the publication that it had purchased a multi-million dollar home in the, the, the Bay Area and also came under criticism for not filing Form 990s and in general, a lack of transparency around its financials. So the two articles we have here is an opinion published in the Washington Post, which from, I think, a largely activist perspective, is critical of the organization for not necessarily engaging or being as transparent with the local chapters 
and the family funds that were set up for victims of police brutality and the desire at the activist level for a little bit more accountability for the national organization, which in 2020 saw $90 million in donations. The other news source is from the AP, in which the former director of the organization, Patrice Cullors, denied wrongdoing, but also laid out some of the concerns of people within the activist community. I should say that at the bottom of that article, I thought this is a little bit more important, they did file a 990, which technically brings them up to date, but the 990 only goes until June of 2020, so does not include really the, the tremendous growth they've seen over the, the past uh, couple years within that financial disclosure. And I think we wanted to highlight this story again because we brought it to this podcast a couple weeks ago. And George, we sifted through the only articles we really could find were, quite frankly, from right-wing news sources that were, were talking about it. And, but we, we identified within that that there actually is kind of a, a genuine thing to talk about within that narrative. So we wanted to highlight from the activist level what people are thinking about this. But yeah, George, do you have any other thoughts or things to add on that? Yeah, we definitely looked through quite a number of news outlets and, and clearly, you know, outlets that rhyme with the word pox have, you know, had a field day with this into, you know, something where, you know, a kernel of truth is turned into a tree of lies and manipulation. But there is still seeds of what actually, you know, did happen. And we tried to go to primary sources and a quote from Colors actually from the AP. I'll just read it directly. On paper, it looks crazy, she said. We use this term in our movement a lot, which is we're building the plane while flying it. I don't believe in that anymore. The only regret I have with BLM is wishing that we could have paused for one to two years to just not do any work and just focus on the infrastructure. You know, the foundation paid $6 million for this Los Angeles compound in 2020 and has, you know, brought ire and criticism. Here's the truth. There is... There's a problem, I'd say, with crisis crowdfunding. When a bunch of money is thrown at an organization of the moment, regardless of whether they have the infrastructure to achieve what the moment demands, there's a reason why traditional philanthropies, capital P philanthropies, will not give more than X percent of a total revenue in a grant to a nonprofit. Let's say you are a half a million dollar organization. Many philanthropies say you're eligible for up to, let's say, 50% of your operating revenue for a grant. Because the true fact is, if they were to get more, say 5 million or 50 million, they wouldn't have the infrastructure to use it. And what's worse could actually send them into a bit of a tailspin of hiring too quickly, focusing on the wrong things and not having the infrastructure to manage that money. And that word can't just be glossed over. And I think this is just an honest quote from exactly what happened. You know, they were, you know, suddenly handed tens of millions of dollars and then expected to operate like an organization with that revenue. And the truth is it's not there. That it takes a long time to hire to set up these systems. And again, it's, you know, I think it's great that that she's out there making you know, and trying to bring back this this narrative. And obviously it's 
Yeah, but probably, I mean, it hurts quite a bit. I mean, she says that, that this is, and I quote, a false narrative and it's impacted me personally and professionally that people would accuse me of stealing from black people. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a tough moment. The foundation announced a 90 million fundraising amount. Wow. I didn't realize it was that high. Anyway, things for you to look at and, and to consider around these uh, macro issues of, uh, of funding. Should we do a feel good story, Nick? We've been, I put some, I put some good ones in there this week. And I knew I've been letting the team down. Yeah, George, let's do a feel good story. This comes from WilmingtonBiz.com, Wilmington's homepage for business. The title of the article is about seeing a sea turtle in need. And this is about a, a sea turtle rehabilitation project. And within the, the 31 sea turtles residing at the center as of this year, they could be released back into the ocean after recovering from various ailments. There is one turtle named Lenny, a Ridley turtle that can't be released because she's blind and can't survive on her own. But just wanted to, to shout out that the awesome organizations in this case, the Karen Beasley Sea Turtle Rescue and Rehabilitation Center, which is taking care of sea turtles. And sea turtles are awesome. I, I learned from Finding Nemo that they live a very long time, and I think that's very cool. So I've always been a big... All right, so I had to look this up. Sea turtles can live up to 50 years or more. So that's, that's great that they're, they're, taking care of, they're taking care of these animals. Good job. And also... Kudos on any time we get a nautical pun. So good job seeing those sea turtles. All right, Nick. Thanks for bringing all the news to us. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 